Hello, welcome to Seniors and the People Who Love Them. I'm Cookie. I'm Pinky. And I'm Wendy. Today, we bring you to our fifth episode of our podcast. We move from acute rehabilitation care to subacute care. Today, we bring you to you very special guest, our friend and colleague, Ida Batesta O'Donnell. We've all worked together at one time or another, the four of us. Ira has a lifetime of experience in nursing and more specifically, subacute nursing. Welcome, Ira. Thank you for your patience getting us started today. Thank you guys for inviting me. My name is Ira Batista O'Donnell. I'm a director of nursing for about 20 plus years in a SNF and long-term care. I started as a GNA in this profession before I became a nurse. And at that time, healthcare, the healthcare system, the patients, the workforce were much, much different than now. But I like what I do, and I would love to do this podcast with you. Thank you. We're so glad you're here. Before we get started, um, can we go back a minute? I know, Ira, you attended our launch party. We certainly really, we really appreciated your attendance. What do you think about it? Your launch party was great. I think there's a um, need for this service you guys are doing. And I think people will be interested, you know, and the people that were there were definitely interested in hearing more. So I think what excited me so much is there were a few elderly folks there. And I think they were really excited and tickled that people care so much about this topic. That really touched me. Yeah. One of our elderly was so excited that youngster are there and he was tickling about it that he feels so proud that our youngster thinking about us at this time and day. Yep. And that's why I was telling uh, Cookie about the interest maybe for where we work at because the people that we serve are very active in, in the community and in the facility. And I think that they would love to participate in stuff like this to talk about, you know, their needs, their wants, their whatever. Absolutely. And hopefully you got, you know, Cookie, you got in contact with her. Yes, I did. Because I'm really pushing for it. I have several people in mind, actually, that, that I was going to talk to. So, yeah, I think the old people will be very interested in talking about what involves them, you know? Right. And then I will get with Inky and uh, Wendy, and we will move forward in that direction. Yep. So I have to do disclaimer today. Our weekly disclaimer is that we are not physicians or lawyers. If you have a medical issue or a legal issue, please seek a practitioner or lawyer to give you professional advice. All right, we're going to get started. And Ira, you can kind of get us started with, you know, an explanation in, in your own thoughts about what subacute care is. I want to start off from an acute care. You come in, you have an event. And you come in, go in, they stabilize you, and then you go to maybe a transitional care unit. You still have some medical needs, but you're not critically ill to be in acute care. And then there's subacute care or a skilled nursing facility, or the buzzword right now is post-acute care. They're all the same, in my opinion. There's actually a definition, a standard definition for what a subacute care is. 
Well, number one, there's criteria. It's got to be goal-oriented. It's comprehensive. It's inpatient care that's designed for individuals with acute illness or injury or exacerbation of a disease. It's normally rendered right after acute care. It's generally uh, more intensive than traditional nursing care, you know, the, the long-term care and all of that. So subacute care, what does that mean? It means that well, number one, for me, the goal of subacute care is for the independence and the hopefully focus on the well-being in order to go home, wherever that is. Most of the patients come with comorbidities. Majority of people have rehab needs. And I know you guys talk about acute rehab in a subacute scenario. They cannot tolerate, you know, the hours that spent in acute rehab, which is about greater than three hours. That's a good point. Yeah, in a subacute, it's, it's whatever a patient can tolerate up to two hours, and that would qualify them. You know, we're just not doing rehab in subacute because this day and age, everybody got multiple diagnoses that, that are chronic that we have to monitor. Maybe they are stable, but, you know, you, they might need teaching, whether it's a wound, whether it's injections, whether it's whatever, uh, in preparation of going home. Treatments, what diseases people are getting admitted with. You can get admitted with a stroke uh, for chemotherapy, wound care, IV treatments, you know, new G-tubes, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's subacute care. So I'd like to talk a little bit about where subacute care is provided. Typically, subacute care is provided in a nursing home facility. We call them skilled nursing facilities, and typically they will have a unit that provides the subacute care, or sometimes like we all work together in a facility that had subacute care kind of sprinkled throughout the units. Sometimes hospitals have subacute units. Pinky and I worked together on a hospital subacute unit, which was I think a really good atmosphere because you kind of got all the benefits of being attached to a hospital system. The challenges with that kind of space is that there's you cannot convert to long-term care, which sometimes subacute patients will. And we can talk about that in a later episode. But in a hospital unit, typically it is a much shorter length of stay. There used to be, and I'm sure some states still have them, they would have you. Um, facilities that are just subacute care. I know we used to have one in Maryland, but I don't think they're in that model any longer. And Wendy, you are so right. They are shorter time. Usually the staying on that kind of facility, which is attached to the hospital, is 40 to 20 days. And some clients that come, they are not able to go back to the previous environment or previous condition they've been before they got ill, they have to convert it to what we call skilled nursing facility. And that is considered rehab criteria, but also medical criteria. Some are the wound that is so severe, we try to you know, take care of infection, but to healing completely wound, sometimes some wounds take six months. And then that kind of condition they probably have to convert to skilled nursing facility to get further treatment so they can get better. So this makes me ask the question to Ira. 
Can you differentiate between subacute care versus subacute rehab? Because we have people that are listening that's not really clear. We oftentimes use terminologies that's not always clear to um, our listening audiences. And so when we say rehab, are we specifically saying uh, physical and occupational therapy? Or when we're saying subacute here, can you just bound on that a little bit? Sure. That's what I was going to interject because, you know, I haven't really thought about this until I started researching about what you guys are asking. And it's very interesting. And I pretty much, I think, uh, defined it in my head. You know, the levels of care, you got the acute. And what Pink is talking about is what I call the transitional care unit. And when you go in there, you still probably have some medical condition that is not quite stabilized to qualify you, that they still have to monitor it daily with a physician right there. And then you move to a subacute, which is a skilled nursing facility. By the way, to be a skilled nursing facility, you have to be accredited by CMS and follow all the guidelines and the regulations. What is CMS? I'm sorry, Center for Medicare Services. Okay, great. So subacute care and subacute rehab is used interchangeably, and you're absolutely right. There's so many lingo out there. They're all part of post-acute. They all provide post-acute services, which might be the wound care, the IV, and all this other stuff. But there's certain criteria for you to be in a subacute care slash subacute rehab. And we talk a little bit about that, the three-night stay and the other stuff that Medicare requires. Uh, you have to have a skilled need, meaning you have to require uh, monitoring of a physician, a registered nurse, things that you cannot do at home. Well, interject that to tell Ira, always uh, client confused what considers skilled service because they think the custodial care is a skilled service. But to stay considered skilled service, custodial care, which is your daily ADL, bathing, dressing, they are not considered skilled service. And in my experience, a lot of clients that I deal with, it, they think because they cannot bathe, so that is skilled service. The criteria for skilled services, they have to be treated by professional staff on a daily basis, which Ida said, rehab, physical therapy, occupational, or registered nurse, licensed practical nurse, they are considered professional and they have to provide the care. So just want to add to what Ira's conversation, custodial care do not cover under skilled services. Well, because a lot of the families, I think, think about the patient alone, but the patient come with the families. And if a family member can do a service, can be taught to give an injection to do other things, then then they're not considered care anymore because somebody can do that job. You have to require, like like we said, a registered nurse assessment, you know, and all the monitoring that is given in a skilled nursing facility. And in my opinion, when you're in a transitional care, which is the one attached to a hospital, the goal for you is still medically re related, like getting you off an exacerbation or whatever. It's really secondary rehab as far as I'm concerned. When you get the sniff is when you really focus on the individual goal. What would it take for you to go to your baseline if you were walking before, if you weren't walking before, what it is that can 
make you independent in your setting, in wherever that is, independent living, assisted living, your home in a community. So the goal to me is is much, much different in the two scenarios. But they're also acute care. <laughs> That's why it's confusing. I don't know if that answered your question, Cookie. Yeah, and that, that did. I would wonder... What is that process? How is it paid for? Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, well, it has to start with an event, right? Mm-hmm. You or your loved one had an event, you ended up in a hospital for, you know, the hospitals don't stabilize you and kick you out because, you know, you, you don't need that type of monitoring. So they send you to a skilled nursing facility for whatever it is. And most of the time, like the people that we serve, which are seniors, when they go to the hospital, it is quick to be deconditioned because they don't get up, they don't move because of whatever disease process they're, they're trying to treat. So they're very much in need of rehab. We have discussed a little bit about finance on our prior podcast. So as we say, patient got ill and whatever medical or physical or mentally, whatever illness, they end up in a hospital. It all tests done, everything done on three or four days. They are saying, okay, the real exhibition sickness is a little bit stabilized. So let's send them to subcute care. So what happened is the hospital social workers send us the referral. First thing, as everybody says, when you have a business, you want to make a profit, right? Same thing with the hospital. First thing we look, Who's going to pay their stay at facility? And that's where it starts. So there is several, most of the elderly people has a Medicare, which is covered for clients stay and all portion when they are on a scale. The thing with that is that Medicare cover only 100 days of a stay. And on top of it, they only cover 20 days full coverage means 100%. But after on 21 days, and has to pay copay. And if you remember on a previous podcast, Wendy has mentioned it, how much copay costs. And some people not able to afford the copay. So that's the one financial that pay by Medicare. Secondary is the private insurance. We talk about that on a previous podcast too. The private insurance run the client condition. It has nothing to do with the subcute. Yes, they will give you authorization for first five days and then say five days later, send me some paperwork. Let me see how much progress the client doing, what they are doing on your subcute unit. And that's why I last time podcast, we also remember that nowadays, a lot of insurance say, okay, you can give us some Medicare and we will cover you free hearing aid, free dental. And most of clients give their Medicare to those insurance. They're actually called Medicare C, which are the Advantage plans. And that adds to the alphabet soup of all this confusion because there's different set of rules for the Advantage plans. Am I correct, Pink? Correct. They do not give that Medicare's criteria based on patient condition where they came from in the beginning. And they want to make that condition so they can go back on a previous environment. As Ida say, Plan C, Medicare Plan C Advantage Plan, they don't see that. They say, okay, they did a progress, they have to go home. 
but they don't leak that they were walking 60 feet before and now they're only walking 20 feet. They need to walk to 60 feet to go on the same environment. So that is very strict criteria. So my advice is before you sign up your Medicare to Advantage plan, please check into it. Hospital costs a lot of money to stay so hospital side, Subcute has almost $550 per $600 a day to stay. And the stay only include your room and board. Right. So if you had everything else, the bill probably go 2500 to 3000 a day. Then there is a medical assistant part of it. That's other arena because... That has to be approved, your level of care by medical assistant uh, entity, and they will decide you are qualified to be on a subcute. So these are the four different payments that I deal on a daily basis that helps subcute services. Most organization, and, and I'm talking about Baltimore County Public School and all that, because we're experiencing it where we are right now. There pushing their members for Medicare Advantage. They're switching from standard Medicare to Medicare Advantage. It's just going to be more and more of Medicare Advantage because it's cheaper, it's more services or whatever. And like you said, what they don't understand is when you become ill and end up in a subacute unit, it's much, much more different, much, much more like a managed care, different criteria. It's the same criteria to bring them in, but to stay is different. Correct, Pinky? That is exactly correct. Now, last few months that on my work field, I have seen so many advantage part deny their stay after seven or eight days. Yeah. My experience has not been good and it's a lot more red tape to get through. It's oh, I more complicated. Yeah, and there's 10,000 of them and and all of them have different rules, different exclusions, different <laughs> different plans. Yeah, I hate to be negative, but I, it feels like the goal is to not pay. Yeah, and then, you know, we experience some people will submit on an update and you don't hear anything and right. coming to the end. And then they decide they weren't going to cover the whole stay. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. and then you find that out one, one week or two later. And they're having staffing issues just like everybody else is across right. the country. And that doesn't make anything better. Yeah, exactly. Even they did not reach their goal they expected. And once this advantage plan declined their state, it's difficult to send this person or client to other nursing facility. It's burden goes on a family member that they have to take the person home and take care of it because they are not on the level they used to be. So keep that in mind, it's a very difficult process at this point. That's the question I was going to interject that oftentimes when a loved one is sent to a subacute facility or skilled nursing facility, there's always the hope that they will return home. So when that doesn't happen, when the collective team determines, you probably will not be able to return to your previous environment. Robert, what happens after that? What happens to that patient? What is that process when it's determined that a, or the loved one has to be in a particular school nursing facility? 
Well, you know, we've experienced this a lot. They can't go home. They're not safe to go home. There's no caregiver or whatever else. So they're stuck in the facility. So first and foremost, what needs to be established is a payer source, whether it's application to Medicaid, whether it's other payer. It just all depends on the situation, I guess, because if they have a caregiver at home, potentially... I know Medicaid, that's what they want to happen. It's cheaper to take care of them at home sure, uh, than a nursing facility, but it's a whole long process. Am I correct, Lenore? Yeah. And you know, some of them is that mindset that that means all of my resources, all of my assets that are either have to be turned over. What happens to the spouse that lives in the home or someone that has lived in the home for over two or three years? That medical assistance process, and Pinky has alluded to this a while back, that in the United States, there is no one that actually has to be left homeless when their health has declined. They have some place to stay. But that process for qualifying to stay in a long-term care facility is a very arduous process. And it can be very confusing, very disheartening for a family member. When you've worked your entire life, you have some resources and you have some assets. And that's a real fear that people have in going to a subacute setting and then having to transition to long-term care. Before you get sick, you need to look into it, your community networking. You need to look at your church, whatever they provide the help if you get sick, your loved one or your relative, how much hour they can. We talked about that previous podcast. If you go home and you are not able to take care of it, maybe the church person can come two hours to stay with you, to give a break to your loved one. and. Sometimes our government also provide called substitute to the family member. Government pays to that person to take care of it. So losing the income because they are not working, because they have to take care of their loved one, that is subsided by the government. You have to look ahead of it before you get sick. What are the options you have when you become sick? So that's why we talk on a previous podcast, planning before we get sick, so we know when this happened, we have some resources to. We've seen families, there might be 10,000 of the relatives, but no <laughs> one is willing to step up. You know what I mean? Which yeah. is very disheartening. It's very sad to me what can happen. Like you said, if you work all your life, you had an event out of your control. You have to divulge all your finances because you you ran out of insurance. You need to qualify for Medicaid. And then you don't know where you're going to go. It's very, very scary. It's scary. And the bottom line for me, whatever it is that needs to be done, whether it's going to a group home, whether it's going home with a loved one, whether it's whatever else, it takes a long time because of the red tape. (laughs) When you're working with a, with exactly. a, uh, agencies, you know, remember at one point they were really pushing the um, home care, taking them home with a caregiver and cooking for my long-term yeah. care. And, but it takes what a year or two. It's, yeah. it, it's ridiculous. I know you're referring to the uh, medical assistance waiver program. Yeah. And oftentimes that is subsidized care and it's more custodial care oftentimes. And I've had experiences with family members or residents that think that, okay, I'm here now. You certainly are not going to put me out. I know there's going to be an opportunity to talk more in depth about long-term care. Yeah. 
yeah. in the uh, facility and what all, all that means because that is definitely another podcast. And yes, people, you know, should talk to each other and make some plans pinking, but that's not that's not a reality. My experience with many people is that they don't talk and many people don't know my mother's resources are, my dad's assets. And I think that's also something that we have to recognize culturally. Everyone is different. Every group yeah. is different. It is not one in the same. Yep. I agree with you. But as we talk on our previous podcast, you need to look into your resources prior while you are healthy. What if something happened to me? Where am I going to? You need to plan ahead of it. As we talk on a previous podcast, we want to talk about your advanced directive, your will and everything. You need to do it in advance. And Ida, Windy and Dinora agree with you. Anything to do with healthcare and nowadays, it takes long time. Look ahead before you get sick. I'm a 80 years, 75 year old and you know, I'm going to go 80 year old one day and I might broke my hip and what am I going to do when that happens? I have a bed for you. Okay. <laughs> well, I love to have the bed, but guess what? All clients won't have lovely friends like you that offer the bed. But the best advice I could give when it comes to that is, is you're right, you need to plan. But I think more importantly, to understand each circumstance, what if situations, what if I run out of Medicare days, what happens next? What if... I ran out of money. What happens next? Just to arm themselves with knowledge as far as what it is to expect, because it is an everybody knows it's overwhelming when you get to that particular situation. We've all had sick loved ones. We know how it is. It's so much information <laughs> that it's hard to absorb, even if you're in the field. <laughs> That's why we come up with this podcast with my colleague to give as much information we have experienced. Experience, yeah. That's why we started this. So hopefully this will help some people. And that's our goal to do this podcast. It's kind of valuable. It brings a question to their head. Yeah. And there's so much to know. I'd like to talk a little bit about what happens when you're in a subacute rehab. Who is going to be managing your care? So the answer is it's truly an interdisciplinary team and it will be made up of practitioners, either physicians or physician assistants or nurse practitioners or a combination of them. It will be nurses, it will be social workers, and it will be therapists. We usually have physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech language therapy. Respiratory therapy. Respiratory therapy, absolutely. A lot of places will have activities, recreational therapy. They will have music therapy. Lots of places have chaplain services, mental health services. So it'll be a combination of all those folks. Any, anything I'm missing? Well, I just want to add that when you go to a skilled nursing facility, you're absolutely right. It is an interdisciplinary work. They have to consult with each other. They have to communicate. More importantly, you are treated as an individual because everybody has a different goal. And the team works to achieve those goals, whatever it might be for you. And they involve the family. They may or may not attend what we call a care plan meeting to discuss the current updates on things, their goals, as far as whether they go home, private duty 
community care, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, and everybody's input is important in that. It's not just one person. Now, the physician obviously directs the medical need of the patient. But I tell you, in a subacute skilled nursing facility, the physician are not there every day. The nurses are. Yep. <laughs> and pretty much are the eyes and ears of the physicians. We're nurses, except for Cookie, who's a social worker. We have to identify changes. We have to assess and really be sharp to identify those changes in order to report it. I just want to point that out. <laughs> Going back, I'm thinking in addition to what Ira said from a nursing perspective, I'm going to expound from a social services perspective. And one of the important issues is the psychosocial well-being of the patients that come in. And what does that mean? How they are adjusting? They are shown any symptoms or signs of depression and anxiety withdrawing. So we involve other outside assistants like maybe psychological companies or to come in and do an assessment because that's very important when you come into a facility, there are going to be some other issues other than the medical issues. And those are some of the kinds of um, problems that I address and I look for. They can definitely hinder their improvement or not. Yeah. And in addition to that, it's their cognitive status. And we'll go into more detail in later episodes. But where are they with understanding their medical needs? Where are they in being realistic about what happens from this point? Are they able to understand certain kinds of treatment options are related to their own. And if they're not able to make decisions for themselves, who is going to make that decision? From a social services perspective, we look at those kinds of health needs and we really are involved. Sometimes I'm the lone ranger when it comes to making sure that my residents are adjusting well, their psychosocial needs are being managed. Something just popped in my head that interestingly enough, where we currently work, we don't have to worry about people not having advanced directives or power of attorney and all that because most of that are set already in relation to where we used to work. Yes. I think most of the people that are assigned as a power of attorney, as a healthcare agent, they take it to the max. They think that they're the one who's going to make decisions for this loved one, and the loved one is still able to make decisions for themselves. That is such a problem. It's crazy. I think I talked about that at the launch party. That's the thing that I see all the time. That It's like nails on a chalkboard. Yeah, yeah. So, we're, you know, I know Cookie try, we try. <laughs> The culture in our building is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And that was the culture is that you're the loved one, then you have a say. No, you don't have a say when somebody has, can speak for themselves. And they love to say, I've got that power of attorney. <laughs> oh, trust me. It, it's been said. Yeah, to be able to understand there are two different types. It's a power of attorney financially and one's for healthcare. They interchange. Right. Yeah, I, I have power of attorney, but, you know, I look at the documents, and I'm like, no, I don't think you do. So we have yeah. to really be mindful of those kinds of issues, you know, when we're in a, a school nursing facility. And then with respect to the decline of our loved one or the resident or the patient, I know, Wendy, you can speak to this issue. Okay, is it time now to be realistic about the medical needs of the patient? Is it time now to make some hard decisions? Should we involve hospice? Think about a palliative approach to our residents. These are just some of the kinds of issues 
Unfortunately, one of the downside in a long-term care facility, skilled nursing facility, are most physicians are not happy to be talking about those things. The first back to, you know, whether it's a social worker or the nurses, and, and that has to change. It is a hard conversation to have when somebody is declining, but they have to be part of the team. Yes, I agree. I, th- I feel like it's getting a little better with the younger generation of doctors, but it is challenging. They usually leave that to <laughs> the other folks working. <laughs> yeah. That's a segue into the next question in terms of all of us can collectively state what have been some of the problems faced in these settings, the subacute rehab or school nursing facility. So we talked about who's making the decision. We talked about some of the issues related to how physicians actually, I wouldn't say taking more responsibility, but being more involved in not just relying on the nursing or the social work staff in some of these difficult issues. One of the challenges that's always there are the unrealistic expectations of a resident or families even that's good how would we address that you know because they're there it's just interesting to me how family views for example we had a patient that got admitted today and her daughter since she's in a higher level of care quote unquote which is a skilled care in her mind that means because it's more cute than maybe an assisted living that that comes with more staff (laughs) to take care of those higher level of care. It's just a lot of misconceptions Mm -hmm. out there. A lot of missed expectations out there. Yeah, it it makes it difficult. It's really difficult to really focus on the patient. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's all over because we we get that as well. I mean, I can imagine. (laughs) We have people that truly expect one-on-one 24-7. And so I used to work in home hospice I mean, this happened a dozen times, so it wasn't novel where the nurse would come to the first visit. And when you're in home hospice, you get uh, a few nurse visits uh, a week. And they, they last anywhere from 45 minutes to 90 minutes or sometimes longer. And when she was ready to leave, the family said, what do you, what do you mean you're leaving? I, you're, you're staying. They thought someone was coming to live with them in their house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's just misconceptions. There's so much and it's so hard to find clear information. And we'll talk about it that at the end of this episode, we'll talk a little bit about resources for people struggling out there. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is related to all the information out there, whether it's WebMD or whatever else and the whole healthcare <laughs> system itself, mm-hmm. as far as people's expectations, you know? Yeah. One of the other things that I could say is an issue in a subacute setting, it depends on the facility you're working with. Cookie and I are very fortunate right now because we work in a very, we can do whatever we need as long as the patient is taken care of. We can get whatever it is. Yep. I've worked in places where you're very limited Mm -hmm. um, to what you can do. And I cannot even imagine how they survive the pandemic. Me either. It's pitiful. (laughs) I was grateful that I wasn't there. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's supplies, whether it's you can't do that test because, you know, that kind of thing. Somebody's always overseeing. I guess the theme of that is what I'm going to say. Healthcare is now a business and not really about the people. <laughs> if I can change one thing, that would be mm-hmm. that would be it. And you have to know how to navigate that business. Yeah, it's it's complicated. Mhm. 
Let's take a break and we will be right back. Okay, welcome back. This is the part of our podcast where we will review any feedback or questions received and give you some resources if you need to continue your research. We are a very new podcast, but we have already received a little bit of feedback and reviews. So thank you to everyone. You can contact us at seniors at seniorscast.com. But first, please enjoy this senior joke. Here we go. A nurse friend of mine took a 104-year-old patient for a walk in the hospital on corridor. When she got him back to his room and sat him down, he took a deep breath and announced, that was great. I don't feel a day over 100. What do you think of that? (laughs) (laughs) All right. The first message we received was from someone who identified only as Sam. They wrote, I enjoy every minute of your episodes. Charles Nixon says, how long will past podcasts be available to listen to? And they will be available indefinitely, forever and ever in perpetuity. (laughs) Yay. Yeah, they don't disappear off of any of these platforms. Yeah, unless you delete them. (laughs) That's right, and we will not. (laughs) So a few resources that I use to kind of do some research for this episode. The first one is Medicare. Medicare is a great resource for all things healthcare. So medicare.gov backslash coverage backslash skilled nursing facility all you really have to do is google medicare subacute care and it will pop right on up i found a really great article from the office of the assistant secretary for planning and evaluation about subacute care and i'm going to put this on the website and i'm also going to put it in the show notes for this episode but it was really great And then I also found a very specific website for the American Speech Language Hearing Association. They have a great website for subacute care. And I think a lot of people don't think about it in this way, but speech language pathologists are critical for patients recovering from strokes, cancer, other illnesses. So they really come into play. And this website is excellent. So I'm also going to put that in the show notes but it is www.asha.org. They have a lot of great resources for anybody recovering from strokes or having any issues with swallowing or anything like that, recovering from any kind of gastric cancer, esophageal cancer, tracheal cancer, anything like that. Yeah, and there's tons of information in the web. If uh, you know, mm-hmm. Google, there's different organizations, um, whether it's for profit or nonprofit out there, that have a lot of useful information. Magazine articles, like mm-hmm. I pulled up this one uh, specifically about subacute, you know, 13 things to know about subacute rehab, and it lists all the things that we talked about today. But yeah, the research is, is pretty extensive if you, if, you, if you look at it. And what, what I find Googling things can be a little tricky sometimes you want to steer away from any ads any for-profit facilities not that they might not have good information but for the for the real unbiased information i think going to places like the ama or leading age yeah yeah hcam that kind of thing and you're right a lot of the facilities have really great ads out there yeah and i found some great ones that have information but mm-hmm. also a marketing tool yes advertising their services yeah and they might 
promise and things that they can't deliver on. I've seen yeah. that happen. Yeah. Okay, well, that is our show for today. Special thank you to our guest, Ira, and I think you might see her again on this show. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> thank you, Ira. Thank you, guys. Please subscribe to our upcoming episodes. We will be releasing new episodes every other Tuesday morning. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for future topics, please visit our website, www.seniorscast.com. You can email us at seniors at seniorcast.com. If you would like to help us get our young podcast off the ground, please give our podcast a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Or hey, if you're feeling really great, just give us a review on all of them. Okay, then until next time, I'm Pinky. I'm Cookie. And I'm Wendy. Stay well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.